The following audio is from Sacred City Church. For more information, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for your amazing plan of salvation. I thank you that you didn't need to create us, but you did. I thank you that you don't need to sustain us, but you do. I thank you that you could have justly killed us all off in the garden at the first sin. You could have wiped out humanity, ended all civilization, recreated everything, but you didn't. Jesus, thank you for being our salvation. Thank you for earning our righteousness. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying that work that Christ did on the cross, for applying that to our heart, for convincing us and convicting us of of the Father's love, for pointing out our sin, that we can turn again to the love of the Father. And I pray today that you would anoint my mind, that you would think through my mind, that you would speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and none of me. I pray that you would anoint the listeners that though they maybe have sat in chairs like this all their life and and heard, quote unquote, the gospel, that something would be different today. Something would be deeper today. Something would be new today, that you would take things from their head to their heart, that you would create a disciple, that you would draw them into your love, that you would change them forevermore. I ask that you would do this through the power of your spirit and the power of the gospel. In Jesus name. Amen. All right, so first off, I need to apologize. I probably actually need to repent more, even more than apologize to all the children's workers last week. Uh, <clears throat> all right, well, I kind of study a lot, and I study a lot, and therefore, when I study a lot, I learn a lot, and then I think I need to, I'm like, they got to know this. They got to know this. They got to hear this too. They got to hear this too. So I can tend to become a little long-winded. All right. It just kind of happens that way. Um, It's not, I hope it's not because I like to hear my own voice. 
Um, I really hope it's not. I hope it is because I just want you to hear the word of God and I want you to know and I want you to just see Christ in a greater way. But I want to apologize because I did preach last week for an hour and 15 minutes. Um, I didn't realize, I knew it was kind of long, but I didn't realize it until I saw Julia in the foyer and she was working down with the kids and I saw it on her face and I was like, I wanted to avoid her. Um, because like 45 minutes, an hour with your kids is great, but an hour and 15 minutes with 40 kids, that 15 minutes, uh, can become, well, yeah, actually some people walked up convinced of purgatory after that. So uh, they wrap everything up about an hour and they have 15 minutes with all the toys put away to, uh, to sit there and twiddle their thumbs without children killing anyone. It's really difficult. So I've been, I, I prayed about it. I've been, I talked, you know, some several of you about it. I, I really do. I want to apologize. I want to repent. I don't want to do that. Um, I plan on preaching to this church for 30, 30 more years. So I don't have to say everything I need to say week after week. And you might have to tell me that. So all I'm saying is I'm going to try. That's all I'm saying. All right. I can't guarantee nothing, but I'm going to try. This is an ultra marathon. It's not a sprint. So I'm going to try. Okay. And my righteousness is not in found and how long I preach or how much I get out. My righteousness is found in the completed work of Christ. So if I don't say it all, I don't say it all. And that's just how it is. So I might end up adding a week or two to this six, <laughs> this six week series. All right. The six week series is going to be at least nine. All right. But it's better than having two hour long sermons, I guess. A friend of mine said, I listened to your sermon. I fell asleep to your sermon, man. It was like an, like an hour. It was an hour and I fell asleep at it. And I was like, well, you probably missed the good part then. You probably should go back and listen to it. No. <clears throat> so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try. And I also want to uh, address the single people in here, especially the single men. Um, I want you to know that I love you. Single men in this room, I want you to know that I love you. Um, I know I've been after you the past couple weeks. I've been, uh, you know, swinging heavy and swinging hard at you. And I believe, I believe God is. I believe God is after you. Um, I believe you've been, you've been convinced and you've been seduced by immaturity, uh, by lust, um, by adolescence. And uh, I want to wake you from that slumber. And I believe the Holy Spirit is wanting to wake you from that slumber. Uh, that men used to become men at 18. Now we think they become men at 28 or whatever it is or 30. And I want to wake you from that. So I want you to know that when I'm, when I'm on you, when I'm going after you, I'm doing it because I love you. I'm doing it because maybe you, you've had, never had a father that would stand up and say, this is not acceptable. This is not who you are. Stand up and be a man and walk like a man um, because of the spirit, because of what God's done in your heart, because of the power of the gospel at work in you. Maybe you never had a father doing that. So in an essence, I'm going to be that for you. Paul was like that with Timothy. And he said, I'm your spiritual father in the faith. And he said, this is what I want you to do. And he, he talked, talked to him about the character traits he wanted him to carry. He talked about the responsibility that he wanted him to carry. He talked to don't let people look down on you because you're young. Go out and walk and fight and act like a man. So I'm not going to apologize. I'm not going to swing any lighter. I'm not going to slow down. I just want you to know um, when you get popped, it's out of love. Okay? That's what I want you to know. It's out of love. I'm trying to wake you from this lust-induced slumber that you are in. <clears throat> and uh, I'm not going to stop admonishing you. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to let up one bit. Um, but I really want you to know that uh, I'm doing it because I love you and I care for you. And it would be a lot easier for me just to be quiet and let you exist in this room. It would be a lot easier for my soul. I wouldn't have to feel any angst 
when I'm around you or feel any, I mean, sometimes I, I say some things that get me in trouble. You know, sometimes I say some, say some things that aren't easy to say, knowing some of your situations, knowing where you are in your life and in your faith. But I believe I have to say those things to be faithful to the word of God and to be faithful to God and not be a people pleaser. Paul said, if I was still trying to please, please people, I could not be a servant of God. So I'm trying to be faithful to the scriptures and faithful to our Lord. And sometimes it's going to mean stepping on your toes. Um, young men, God likes to, he likes to put weight and responsibility on young men. He wants you to carry weight. You know, Joseph was probably your age, early 20s, when he had to raise God. How would you like that? Hmm? That, how's that going to go? You, like, you want that job description? Here's God. Here's the Son of God. Don't screw it up. That's weight, all right? That's some responsibility he's got to carry. <clears throat> so, um, I love you. I care for you. And with that said, we're going to go. Um, we're going to go on in our fifth week of our series. Um, this is our marriage series, but we're just walking through the book of Ephesians, and we've got to this section, um, chapter five, verse twenty-one through thirty-three, and we've really been picking it apart and sitting down in it, pulling things out. So this is uh, week five, and it's going to be called marriage as completion. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to uh, um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. All right. I'll go ahead and read it. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. Now, if you don't know, this is a direct quote from the book of Genesis. All right, a direct quote from the book of Genesis. And anytime you're reading scripture, and you can tell if you have a study Bible, they'll have some cross references and things. But anytime you're reading scripture and they quote another portion of scripture, it's not just the script, that one little quote that they're talking about that informs uh, what they're talking about. You need to go back so this is, is quoting the book of Genesis. So that, that means Paul is referring to an argument or um, implications in the text from the Genesis that you need to be aware of. So what you do when you're reading this kind of thing, if you want to read the Bible in context, if you want to know not just this is the, the number one rule of reading your Bible, it was the Bible was written for you, but not to you. The Bible was written for you, but not to you. So you don't come to the Bible and say, what does this mean for me? That's not your first question. You're going to go off and you're going to, have, you're going to get into heresy. You're going to get into all kind of false doctrine. You're going to be hearing things from God that aren't God at all. This is how cults are born. This is how people get off, uh, off center with their faith. The first question you should always ask from the text is, what was the author trying to communicate to his original audience? The author's intent should inform us first. So what's Paul saying right here to the Ephesians, to the churches spread across Asia Minor? What is he saying to them? What did it mean to them? And then I deduce what does it mean to me from that. Okay, from that. So when he quotes Genesis, we need to go back to Genesis and read the context. Read where he's pulling that quote from. All right, it's going to inform us and educate us. And it's going to teach us what he means by the two shall become one flesh. 
Leave your father, cleave to your wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So I want to do that uh, today, right now. Let's go to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. All right, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. If you've got your U version pulled up, uh, our liturgy's on there, and I think I included it there for you. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. This is the creation story. God is um, existing before all time, and this is the history of the creation of the world. Let's, let's go ahead and read it. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. It's not good... That man should be alone. Okay, just time out right here. Time out. Why is it not good that man should be alone? If you know the the story of creation, then you know that God had this liturgical um, order. He would create and then he would bless it. He would create and he would say, it is good. He would create, it is good. He would create... It, would, it was good. So he would say, let, let there be light. It was good. It was, and he went through this order. And then all of a sudden he creates man. And he says, it is not good that man should be alone. Why is it not good that man is alone? All right. We're going to put our finger in 218. And we're going to come back to it. Flip one page to the left. We're going to go to Genesis 1, verses 26. When you're there, say there. All right, let's read. Then God said, who's speaking? God, okay. Then God said, let us hmm, make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, look at this, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He creates man. It is not good that man should be alone. Why is it not good? Look at verse twenty. Six. Then God said, let... What's the word? Then God said... Who's speaking? Let... Hmm? Let us... Let us make man in our image after... Our likeness. It's weird, right? Seems weird. Let God, let our. What if I start speaking like that? All right, I'm going to tell you guys that we are going to start. Like, what? Who are you talking about right now? God exists alone. All right, here we go. Theology lesson 101. We serve one God. And we have been made in the image of one God. But God exists in three persons. The name we have come up with to describe this is God, that God has triune nature. He is a trinity. He exists before the foundations of the world as, this is crazy, a community. 
God is one, but exists in three equal but distinct persons. Now, before you just say, time out, theology, shut it off, boring, don't want to talk about it. If we have been made image in the in, uh, if we have been made into the image of God, we better know what God looks like. If we come and we deduce our being and our identity from Him, we better know what His being looks like, what His nature is, who He is in His nature. If we've been made in that image, right? C.S. Lewis describes it this way. You know, I couldn't get away with doing this. The Christian God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. What does he mean, a dance? God is like a dance. In the Bible... The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorify and submit to one another. Each person of the Trinity glorifies the other. It's like this weird Trinitarian dance. There's one God, but there's three equal and distinct persons in that one God. And the Son completely, listen, the Son existed with God before the foundation of the earth. The Son was not created. The Holy Spirit was not created. All three are eternal. And before anything else was created, they existed in this mutual love dance. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves and submits to the Father and lays His life down for the Father. The Holy Spirit points up to Jesus. The Holy Spirit points back to the Father. Each one is mutually laying their life down for the other. It's this dance. No, you first. No, you first. No, you first. Now, uh, this has got a lot of implications. Think about if, if, if you've got five people in a room and they all think they're the center of the universe. And they're trying to dance. Right? I'm going to lead. No, you lead. No, I'm going to... I'm, they're all trying to lead on their own. That doesn't work. Dancing, if you're going to dance with someone, one person leads, one person follows. So it is with the Holy Spirit. So it is with Jesus. So it is with the Father. So it is with the Trinity. In the Trinity... The goal, it's who can humiliate, who can humble themselves the most? Who can glorify the other the most? Listen how theologian Cornelius Platinga describes the triune nature of God. The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, and defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the other at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance. And each person envelops and encircles the other. Listen, God's interior life, therefore, overflows with regard for others. Now, this is a really difficult concept to get your head around. If you think you've got it, you don't. Alright, I'm just going to tell you that. You don't understand this. None of us don't understand this. This is a paradox. This is something that's... Listen, it's not unthinkable. It's not like just don't even think about it. It's something that should get us to, to worship God and get us to glorify God. And I'm, hopefully I can show you that uh, today. The Bible says... Now listen. 
The Bible says that God is love. If God existed solely as a unipersonal God in eternity past, how could he be love? Love is not love until it has loved. If he existed just unipersonal, just him, just the Father from all eternity past, how could he be love? What, what's he loving? What is there to love? Himself? God couldn't be love because there was no one to love. But the Christian God, the Christian God, now this is, I love this, because this is what separates us from the rest of the world. No other religion in the face of the planet has a triune God. They have one God, they have unipersonal God, they have Allah, they have all these different, but no one has a, as a community as God. No one has triune nature God. Which is just brilliant. Because no one else can have a God that is love. The Christian God is triune. He's three in one. He existed in this perfect love relationship from all eternity past. Oh man, this is absolutely brilliant. If you can get this, this will change your life. Because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are giving glorifying love to one another nonstop, always, from eternity past, God is infinitely, profoundly happy. If you understand the Trinity, it can flip the entire script of what you believe about God. God exists. God the Father has the Son of God worshiping Him nonstop, glorifying Him, lifting Him up. Lay, what do you want me to do, Father? I'll lay my life down to you. The Holy Spirit is constantly pointing up to the Father and pointing at the work of the cross of Jesus, saying, He's the Son of God. He was absolutely perfect, the perfect imprint of the nature of God. Everything was complete in the Son of God. And they, and they bow and say, Holy Spirit, they point to the work of the Holy Spirit to the earth. They send, Jesus says, i got to go so I can send the Holy Spirit here to the earth. This dance within the Trinity, perfect love being poured upon each one of the members of the Trinity means that God is fulfilled in Himself. God is satisfied in Himself. God is whole in Himself. God is loved in Himself. God is infinitely and profoundly happy. Which means He's not after your dutiful obedience. You think it gives Him glory when you say, I guess I better do the right thing. I guess I better wake up and go to church. Daylight savings. Ugh. He doesn't get glory from that. He doesn't get glory from that. I can't have sex until I'm married. Well, I guess I'll make God happy. No! God's after your joy. God's already happy. He doesn't need you to be happy. He doesn't need you to be happy in Himself. I hope this changes your view of God today. God did not create us because he was lonely or in need of us for any reason. He wasn't twiddling his thumbs in eternity past saying, I'm really bored. I really need a lot of minions. God was brilliantly happy before creation. He was completely fulfilled and satisfied And if God is already happy, 
He isn't after your sour-faced obedience. Just suck it up and make it happen. No. No. He didn't create us to get joy, but to give it. What? God didn't create us to get joy. He created us to give it. There's so much love going on in this dance. There's so much acceptance. There's so much humility. There's so much reverence. There's so much glory going on from eternity past. Boom! That creation births forth. What happens between a mother and a husband and a wife? There's love. There's connection. There's unity. There's humility. One lays down. There's all this stuff going on. And what happens? New birth comes out of it. Right? Pregnancy comes out of it. Life comes out of it. This love dance. Life comes out of it. Same thing happened in the Trinity. He didn't create us to get joy. He created us to give joy. He's the point. We aren't. We've been created to enjoy God, right? We've been created to enjoy God and glorify Him forever. He's invited us into the dance. You want to find meaning? Glorify me. It's all about me. I created everything for your joy and my glory. You want to find joy? Glorify what needs to be glorified. The only thing that's truly worthy of the glory. We've been made to dance with the Trinity. Now listen, this, there's a lot of... Um, bad theology out there. A lot of new, like, resurgence of bad theology. Um, the, the Trinity was decided in, early in the 4th century. Alright? Um, a lot of our, a lot of things, that Christianity started really small and it started getting bigger and it started gaining momentum and then all of a sudden these people started popping up with crazy views on God and crazy views on how to be saved. And cra- so, the Council of Nicaea met and early 300s, and they, they basically said, Jesus, is, this is what we're going to do. We're going to set doctrine. We're going to set what right teaching is. We're going to say, that's false, that's heresy, this is what's true. Okay? And basically, right there, the Trinitarian nature of God was set. It was, this is Orthodox Christian doctrine, right there. From that point on, um, Catholics, Orth- Orthodox, and um, Protestants from that basically all three sec- all three segments of Christianity agree to the, uh, about the Trinitarian nature of God. So one of the easiest ways to spot a false religion or a cult is that they don't believe in the Trinity. They believe maybe that that God existed in three different types of people, but it was all one. It was uh, God all of a sudden acted like the Son, and then all of a sudden the Son acted like the Father, and it was just God playing three different roles. Eh, wrong makes a really awkward interpretation for Jesus' baptism. Okay? Jesus gets baptized. The Father speaks from heaven. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Right? Jesus obeys because He submits to the Father even though He's never been sinned. He gets baptized and the Holy Spirit falls on Him. Okay? This is some kind of weird Adam Adam Sandler drama if God does not exist in three persons. Right? Adam Sandler is playing like the lady and he's playing all the parts of the play. Really weird. If God is speaking to himself, this is my son and whom I... What? That's really weird. Multiple personality here. I'm speaking to my son and then the Holy Spirit's coming down. Three distinct persons of one God. Okay? It also makes this... How do you interpret Genesis right here that we're reading? Let us make man in our image after 
our likeness. One God, three persons. Okay, so back to our text. We're going to go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. Why is it not good that man should be alone? Because God is not alone. We've been made in the image of God. God is not alone. God exists in the Trinitarian nature. So it's not good that man should be alone. So therefore, I will make a helper suitable for him. We have been made, I love this, we have been made by a community for community. We've been made by a community. God exists in a community for community. If this world was made by a triune God, then relationships of love is what life is really all about. If we've been made by a triune God, then relationships of love is what life is all about. So back to Genesis 1, 18. All right? It's not good to be alone. I'm going to find a helper fit for him. All right? And now if you read, well, we might as well just read. Let's just do this. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens. And he brought them to the man to see what he would call them. All right? Adam, one of Adam's first jobs. God goes to the dirt. Boom. He makes Adam. He puts him up there. And then he says, it's not good that man should be alone. So then God goes back to the dirt. He creates all these animals, birds of the field, uh, bird, or birds of the field, birds of the air, animals of the field. And then he parades them in front of the man. Right? And he says, all right, Adam, first job, name him. He's looking for a suitable helper. It's not good that he's alone. Let's find a helper. He parades all of the animals in front of him. And Adam's doing two things, right? Adam's going, deer, nope. Bear, nope. Lion, nope. Falcon, nope. Right? What's he doing? What's the nope? He's naming them, not a helper. Not suitable. Doesn't work for me. Right? He goes through. Can you imagine this process? Is this a day's process? No, this is not a day's process. Right? Salam, it's, they're getting progressively smaller. Salamander. What? This is not working for me. Snake. No, not even close. Ant. What? Right? He's going through all these things and naming them. Adam's giving them their name. Nope. 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 Can you imagine how depressed Adam's getting? There's not, a, there's not found a helper that's suitable for him. Okay? Verse 20. The man gave names to all livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, ladies, I can already tell you're getting a little anxious, right? A helper? He's looking for a helper. Well, I know where this is going. Right? I can understand your frustration here. The English translation loses much of the meaning and value of this word. In fact, listen, this will set you free, ladies, right here, okay? The word helper, God uses it of himself throughout Scripture. I will be their help in the day of trouble. I'm going to leave this earth and send you the Holy Spirit who is your helper. Okay? So if you think like this is some meaningless, minion-like Beck and call, whatever the man wants, that's what we do. If you think it's that, you miss it. All right? God himself refers to himself as a helper. So, 
What did I say before? If God exists in a trinity, if there's this dance going on, the real meaning of life is he's inviting us into this dance. And marriage in some mysterious, mysterious, is that a word? No, it's not, but I just created it. Mysterious, mystical way is pointing to this crazy Trinitarian union, this crazy Trinitarian nature of God. But I'm going to say more about that in weeks to come. What helper really means. It's a strong helper. That's the the real interpretation. What does it mean? What does it look like for a woman to be a helper? We're going to talk about that in the next couple weeks. So, all right, let's keep going. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. Man, you could, if you memorize this verse, you could really use it for your advantage in the future here. Okay. I don't know. God just caused a deep sleep to fall upon me. I can't help it. I didn't wake up when the baby, I didn't even hear the baby. I have no idea. Right? Close, uh, then this is what happens. Deep sleep falls upon the man. And while he slept, while the man slept, God took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. Then the man said, At last. I can't do it, but that's, that's an Etta James right there. That's an Ed, this is where she got it right here, right? He brought his, all of his swag together right to this moment, and he said, At last. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He speaks poetic language to her. And to God right there. God presents the woman to man. And he says, at last. This is bone of my bone. Think about, think about, he's sitting there for a week. Nope, 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 nope. Knocks him out. The first surgery. Lays him wise open. Creates woman out of, not out of the dirt, not out of the dust of the ground. Like he made all the animals and he made Adam. He takes her out of his side. He fashions her. If you know anything about creation, about being a creator, your best project is always your last project. Right? You started pretty good, but then the next one you're going to do better. And then the next one you're going to do better. And the next one you're going to do better. The last thing God creates is a woman. I figured that was coming, so I might as well just go with it. From this rib, God makes Eve, and he walks her down the aisle, and he gives her hand in marriage to Adam. All right, now listen. This context, what we're seeing here, should clear some things up for us when we go back to Ephesians. Should give us some some understanding of what Paul's referring to. Why does he quote this text? Why does he quote this in Ephesians? It should give us some understanding. Listen. So when, when, we, read in, when we read in Ephesians, when Paul tells husbands, Husbands, lay your life down for your wife. What does he mean by that? Lay my life down. He's quoting Genesis. What did, what did Adam do? It's exactly what Adam had done. Adam had first submitted himself to God. Adam had completely given of himself. He laid himself down. He was completely vulnerable. He was unconscious. 
and he was laid wide open so that God could create a wife for him and complete him. Men, this is what it looks like to lay your life down for your wife. Complete vulnerability. Complete openness. Complete honesty. You can't be more vulnerable than naked and knocked out. You better trust whoever's got the scalpel. And Adam gave up a rib to get a bride. Men, it's going to cost you something. People say, a lot of theologians talk about, it came out of his rib because she's meant to walk beside him. She's meant to be comforted by him. Your rib is protected, right? It's softer. It's more open, uh, or it, it could, it's, it's, it's easily woundable. It's meant to be guarded and protected. She doesn't walk in front of him. She doesn't walk behind him. She walks next to him, under his arm, under his protection. And then Adam says, at last, this is bone of my bone. This is what he's saying. At last, I know who I'm supposed to be. In an essence, his lost rib is walking in front of him. His missing piece is coming. In. He's being presented by what completes him. At last, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He's saying, now I know who I am. Now I know why I was made. Now I know my purpose. At last, I know who I'm supposed to be. He was created by community for community. And therefore, listen, by himself, he was deficit. He was at a deficit. He was lacking something. It was not good that he should be alone. Men and women have been created by God with designed deficits. Male and female are not interchangeable. More than biology. The role of the husband and the role of the wife are equal, but not equivalent. And they are not reversible. Even at the atomic level, all the universe is held together by the attraction of positive and negative forces. In marriage, this can only happen. This type of union, this type of connection. We talked about last week that we were made for this deep oneness. This type of connection can only happen between a man and a woman. I know I have homosexual friends that would argue with me on this point, And I will argue with them day and night. And I love them but it was designed by the Creator. Positive, negative forces connect. You can't have this type of oneness. And many of my homosexual friends would actually concede this point, actually. They would say, the reason I like men, if I'm a dude, is because I get them. I understand them. It's easier. I get that. Believe me, I get that. Right? We're completely different. 
completely unique. And books have been written. I disagree with these books. Men are from Mars. Women are from wherever they're from. I don't know what that part is. but right, Venus, that's what it is. Venus. I read the book. It's kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of ridiculous. All right? They've been created with de- de- designed deficits. Why? They were created by a community for community. Every single cell of our body is stamped XX or XY. You don't, we don't get to change that. We don't get to say, well, it's easier to do blank. Well, I never had a father and I didn't know what it means to be a man, so I'm going to do this. It doesn't work that way. This is creation. It's not cultural. It's creational. We're built this way. So men and women are equal but different when they come together. They fit like pieces of a puzzle. And they create one totally new person. It's like a... There's no way to really describe this. So every illustration I would try to use fails. Okay? You can't describe the Trinity. People say, well, it's like hydrogen, oxygen, they get together, it becomes what? No, it's not like that at all. Those are three separate things. This is one in three. You can't describe it. We can try, but we fail every time. All right? It is kind of like a chemical reaction. You got one chemical, you got another chemical. They come together, they create a, to- a chemical reaction happens. They create a totally different chemical. It's one totally different chemical. It's not like the husband... You know, is chocolate chips and the wife is the dough and you mix them all together and you still have two distinct things. It's not like that. When the husband and the wife come together, completely new person. Brings out some more implications of stuff we've talked in the past week. This is why when the husband and come together, they leave the, they leave the mother and wife, they create their own rules. Not extra biblical rules. They still submit to those. But how are we going to do things? How are we going to operate as a family now? We don't just bring in mom and dads. So men, this is blanket statement here. This is blanket statement. So it's going to, I know I'm going to get some pushback on it. Men were created to lead and initiate. Lead and initiate. Women were created to nurture and receive. Now, listen, you're going to, you can get mad at me. Does that mean women can't lead? No, women can lead. They're going to, but typically when women lead, they lead in a nurturing and a receiving type of way. Typically when you see a man lead, he don't care. He don't care. He just leads. Now this, this guy, I know we got different personalities and we got all this kind of stuff we can put in there. And there's all kind of stuff that, that creates some maybe confusion and some, well, what if, what if, what if, what ifs. But overall, men were created to lead and initiate. Women were created to receive, to nurture, and to nurture. All right? And this is why. In creation, this was meant to help each other flourish. God gave both man and woman dominion over the earth. Both were told to God, by God to fill the earth, to build civilizations, to create culture. That means both men and women can be artists and scientists and doctors and all those things. Both men and women can do those things. But they're going to do those things in distinctly different ways. 
One little example. Javin comes to me, Dad, I have homework. I need help. I need help. Now, this is just something I just realized this week. I'm not a very good helper. He gives me it. Oh, yeah. Was, nope, nope. There you go, bud. Right? Javin needs help on a video game? Dad, I need help. Give me the controller. There you go. All right, see you. I help. No, I'm not helping. I'm leading. I'm doing it. I'm doing it for him. That's not help. Mom helps. Oh, come here. You gotta do it. Here's your hand, Grammy. You know, she's all, this is how you do it. This is how it's going on. Foreign to me. Takes so much time. So much easier just to do it myself. Right? This is, and this isn't just, this isn't, I can't just blanket and say, well, every man does this and every wife does. No, because the way you were raised does affect us. Women, if you were raised by what could be considered a man who did not initiate, then you could sinfully sometimes step into that role and take it on and lead yourself. You know, Genesis 3 happened. These, were cre- these roles were created for us to flourish in society, for us to flourish together in relationship. We have de- de- designed deficits so we could work together and function together as a new unit. We could click like puzzles of a, like two pieces of a puzzle. But Genesis 3 happened. Sin enters the picture. Man does not initiate. Man does not lead. Woman picks the apple. She eats it. Nothing happens. But then she says, honey, look at this. This thing's good. And he knows God said no. He knows God said you can eat from everything else. Don't eat from this. Obey me. And what's, what's the man do? He abdicates his responsibility. He abdicates his leadership. He says, okay, honey, give me that apple. That looks good. Creation fractures. Sin enters the picture. Sin enters the story. He was told to subdue the creation. He gets subdued by a snake. Man, you're above creation. And, cre- and it gets flipped. And creation, eat this, do this. And he listens to a snake. That's what idolatry is. Putting the created thing above the creator. And since that moment, our differences haven't been a source of complete completion, but they've been occasions for oppression and exploitation. The woman remains dependent and desirous of her husband, but now it turns into this idolatrous desire to control him. The man still has these desires to protect and nurture and initiate and love his wife, but now it becomes a selfish lust and can lead to exploitation. So the next few weeks, we're going to study these differences. We're going to discover the roles of man and woman. What do the roles look like biblically? And ladies, it's not. You're not going to hear women stay at home with the, the family and that's what they have to do. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. People that want to preach that, they forget we have Proverbs 31 in the Bible. Right? She's up early. She's working hard. She's laboring. She's going to the market. She's a working woman. It's not what you're going to hear, but there are design deficits that can. If that's your heart, if that's your, what you want to do is stay at home, by all means. By all means. But that's not uh, a mandatory role of a woman. So we're going to discover these the next few weeks. So I want to go back to Ephesians 5 really quick. I'm going to go through this. 
Okay, really quick. Flip back to Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wife. We're at verse 20. uh, Let's go to 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Okay? So ultimately, we're going to work out what does this mean? The husband's the head. The wife is the body. Now listen, for those of you who are like, I don't like that. What's more important, the head or the body? Some of you guys are really trying to figure that out. Separate them, find out. They're both vitally important. They're both just as important. Head without a body... Not much, not much gets accomplished, right? Body without a head, not much gets accomplished, okay? So get this out of your mind that being part of a body means less than the head. Is Jesus less than the Father? No. Is He in full submission to the Father? Yes. It does not mean less than. We were created by community for community. It's just different. We're equal but not equivalent. So, okay. The man's the head, the wife's the body, the man leads, the wife helps. So what does all this mean for singles in the room? Single people who've been zoned out, what does this mean for you? Please do not hear me. I've heard this a couple times. It does not mean... That you need to go get married right away. Okay? It does not mean that the person that you're looking at means, I better just get hooked up right now. Got to be completed. It's not good that man to be alone. I need to find that woman, right? That's not what I'm saying. Don't go out and get married right away. Unless God's telling you specifically to do that and you've been putting it off and whatever. It does not mean you need to go find someone to be complete. What? Listen. Jesus completely redefined singleness. In his day and age, in that culture 2,000 years ago, single people were ostracized. They were weird. Right? Girls were getting married at 12. All right? Single people was literally a second-class citizen. There's something wrong with you if you're single. The reason you don't think Single people are weird is because of what Christ has done to completely change culture. That's why. Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the son of the living God, sinless in the flesh, was single. The apostle Paul was single. He redefines singleness. If you're single... You have an opportunity to be married to Christ first. If you're single and you are a Christ follower, you are married to Christ. He is your spouse. He is who you should be faithful to. He is the one that completes you ultimately. Remember, this is a mystery of marriage. We're going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks. This is a mystery of marriage and it points to Christ and His church. 
that marriage is just a pointer to the ultimate reality that we have been completed in Christ. And one day we will be so united in God that we will be caught up completely in that divine dance within the Trinity. Marriage is just a pointer to that. Married or single, marriage is to point us to Christ. He will complete you. He is the real leader. He is the real helper. He is the completer. He is the one that your soul was really meant to be united with. Husband and wife kind of point to that. We're created with these designed deficits that meant to point us to Christ who will ultimately complete us. Jesus is the true and better spouse that we're longing for. Jesus is the true and better spouse that we're longing for. He's the perfect leader who submits and ultimately lays his life down. He's the perfect helper that humbles himself and glorifies God. It's not about me, it's about him. Men and women, this is where we get our roles. Men lead like Jesus. Women submit like Jesus. Men, sacrificial leadership. Women, sacrificial submission. The Trinity displays both roles. The role of a leader and the role of helper. And in the dance of the Trinity, the one who sacrificed the most, the one who could most glorify the other, was the greatest. You see this. Father, I've, Jesus is about to go to the cross. Father, I've glorified you. And I'll glorify you again once more. What's God? So what's he do? He sacrifices himself. I'll glorify you. How? By sacrificing. And then God says, wow. You have glorified me. And now I'm going to glorify you. And he puts him the name above all names. The highest seat in the kingdom. Lord of lords. King of kings. Sacrifice. Leadership. Submission. Leadership. Jesus is so brilliant. Adam gave up a rib to get a bride who was beautiful and spotless. Jesus gave up his life for a bride who was ugly and sinful. But he did it to make her spotless and beautiful. Adam gave up a rib for a perfect woman. (laughs) I hear the dude, I'll do that. (laughs) Sign me up. Jesus gave up his life for an unfaithful church. We're unfaithful. We're sinners. We're stained. But he did it to make us beautiful, to make us holy, to make us righteous, to make us spotless without blemish. And that's what he's going to present to the Father in new creation. This happy triune God broke up the party for us wretched sinners. Jesus, the God of God, 
eternally present and happy with the Father and Holy Spirit, willfully chose to leave that perfection to walk a human life, our human life, in order to submit and please the Father by redeeming us with His precious blood. He left heaven. He left His happy place to come live our life and die our death so that He could present us to God spotless and blameless. That's love. That's what we get to participate in in some crazy way in marriage and in the life of the Trinity. As you come and take these elements today, I want you to think about that. I want you to think about that. Father, what you've done for us, you're happy. You are whole. You created us not to get joy, but to give joy. How can, how can I, through your spirit, image that to my wife? How can I point my wife to the perfect father? How can I submit in such a way that I point my husband to the perfect leader, Jesus Christ? If you have not experienced the perfect love of God in this room, if you're here, you're just checking it out. You've heard Jesus. Maybe you've grown up in church your whole life. Growing up in church does not make you a Christian. Okay? You can move all your stuff out of your house and move into the garage. Just because you live in the garage doesn't make you a car. All right? You can grow up in church and not get it and not believe it and not have your life changed by it. I ask you today, believe the gospel. You're worse than you ever thought possible. But you're more loved than you ever hoped for. You see it on the cross. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your grace. I thank you for marriage that points us to the ultimate union in the Trinity. I pray that you would save sinners today. That you would regenerate hearts. You would convert sinners you would let them see the beauty in the face of Christ. Let them reject legalism and rule-based ways to earn their way to God and let them reject licentiousness, just living their life their own way, making their own rules, and let them see the beauty in the face of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.